This is a story about Billy Joe and Bobby Sue. Two young lovers who knew exactly what to do. Sit around the house, get high, and watch too. Come on, get your money and run. Come on, take your money and run. Hey, this is Todd Brinker. Welcome to Back from the Brink, the after show for KCA Radio's On the Brink. Uh, Aaron will be joining us shortly. So uh, just looking at some stuff, uh, and one of the things I've been looking at is the top 10 selling albums of all time. And it seems in this time of streaming that albums have just faded away. Um, I think part of that, quite honestly, and I blame this on the electronic music people, is that the cover art and the cover information was not well presented. I mean, even today when I look at something like um, Spotify or Apple Music, the album cover is tiny, and what used to be on the back of the album is non-existent, and what used to be in the open of the, in the center of gatefold albums is gone. And you know, when I was growing up, and we actually listened to LPs. Granted, I had gone through uh, you know eight tracks, and then cassettes, and then CDs. Um, but when I was when when the tape was in, when it was eight track and cassette, I never did eight track. I did cassette because my dad said, "There's no way on earth you're going to buy that. It's a bad design." Uh, being an engineer and a looped tape, he was right. They would they were built to wear out, so you'd have to buy them again. So he bought cassettes because they were essentially little reel-to-reels inside a case. Uh, and so they didn't wear an, on each other and eventually tear up. Anyhow, I would buy the LP in a blank cassette and copy the LP onto the cassette and then play the cassette. And if it ever got eaten in the machine or, or wore out eventually, then I'd go back to the album and make another one. And so, um, uh, you know... It, I had a lot of albums, and I still do, and um, and I like them. I like that 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 mode of listening, or I like the information. It was something that you would do. You would sit and listen to the album while looking at the cover art, and by reading what was on the outside of the on the back of the album or in the gatefold. And so you'd open it up like a book, and inside there'd be all kinds of information and lyrics, and and you know some some background about the songs and why they were written that way. Anyway, top-selling albums of all time. Top-selling albums. Number 20, Saturday Night Fever soundtrack. 15 million sold. Um, that was so huge when it was out, it doesn't surprise me that it makes the top 20. Maybe surprised me a little bit that it's in 20th. But it was a long time ago. Um, Jagged Little Pill, Alanis Morissette, 17 million. The Beatles, 1967-70 album. That's the blue sort of greatest hits album that they had. Now, they had a red one that was like 64 to 67 and then 67 to 70 was the blue album and that's the one that's listed here 17 million copies uh it's the first instance of the beatles they'll be back on here as will garth brooks he's in number 17 with no fences let's get aaron involved hello aaron how are you I'm good, Todd. How are you? Good. I was just talking about some of the top-selling albums of all time. You made me think about that by pointing out what the number one one was. So I was kind of going down the the top 20. But, you know, it, it occurred to me, and I've kind of come to this opinion, that I think album sales were killed by, obviously, or not obviously, but largely by, by streaming music uh, or by being able to buy songs piecemeal uh, through through downloaded music, right? Yes. Um, but I think that part of what killed them, because certain albums like Pink Floyd, The Wall, is best listened to as an album. You don't want to buy just one little smidgen. And I think that, um, you know, the, the, the music industry lost control of that. 
the the part of the reason that albums died was because they were on a long slow death ever since we changed from LPs. When we went to eight tracks and we went to cassettes and even with CDs, started to come back a little bit with CDs, but mostly with the, the other two, you lost the album art. You lost the back of the, the album. You lost that gatefold opening in the middle that had all that information. It often had lyrics. It had some background information about who played on the on the on each track and about, you know, how why this sometimes notes as to why the songs were written or what they what their meanings were. And uh, and I think you just lost a lot of engagement. I had never thought about that, but that makes perfect sense. You know, because it makes perfect sense. You know, I, I am a, of an age where I bought albums. In fact, when cassettes, uh, my, my dad wouldn't let me buy eight tracks because being an engineer, he looked at eight tracks and said, that's a stupid design because it's basically a giant loop of a tape and you pull from the middle. And so it's just one piece of, 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 of audio tape looping all the way around and it was pulling from the middle and uh, to to then start again and there was friction there and it was rubbing he said it's designed to wear out you will listen to that for a period of time and it'll slowly get worse and worse sounding and then you'll have to throw it away and buy another one whereas the cassette was two small reels just like an open reel to reel which was the highest fidelity you could get back in the day um inside of a little plastic case. And so he said, no, 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 we're going to go straight to cassettes because eight tracks came out first and they were very popular and I never had one. And I remember being frustrated, but I understand it. I understood it then and I understand it now. But, um, and he I, was right. He was absolutely right. So what I always did, and I probably should credit him here too because I think he's the one who suggested it, but this is what I did, is I would buy the album and then record it onto a cassette and listen to the cassette until the cassette wore out or broke or something, and then I'd go back to the album. And So my albums were all in almost pristine condition because they were played maybe once or twice, and then I, you know, because I would record them onto the cassette and listen to the cassette. But this is how old school it was. We had no physical way to plug a cassette player into our record player to get the music into the cassette player. So what I did was I would put the two speakers on either side of the cassette player, I would start the album and hit record, and then walk out, and I do this like in, in, in my bedroom, and then close the door and stay out of there until it was done so that it didn't hear me moving around or talking in the room. And I remember getting livid at, at Tobin one time, because we were young and shared a room, where he came, went in the room and started playing in there with toys and stuff while I was trying to record. And so when I went to go listen to it, you hear him crashing around through the closet and getting <laughs> stuff. It's like, man, you ruined my recording. I have to start over. <laughs> He was a little kid, Todd. He, he was a little kid. I was a little kid. This is a long time ago. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I, but I used to sit and, and listen to the music while looking at the album art and contemplating the album art. I mean, you know, you look at Sgt. Pepper's uh, cover, and there's so much going on there. And you're like, who are all these people? And, of course, this is before the Internet, right? So, um, you know, there, there were albums that would have, like, a, an actual like um, uh, explanation of their front cover, like they would have you. They would have the front cover, and then inside you'd open it up, and there would be an outline of the front cover with numbers on all of the different items on there, and a list of what those items are, so you could see what they put into their design and 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 why. And it just it added to the whole process and the sense of of, of listening to music was all this extra information that just disappears with electronics. I mean, you don't even get to see the artwork which is has so there's some artwork that's phenomenal um so 
I would say as well that that um, they put out a lot of garbage on an album. So mm-hmm. you get one good song and the rest of it was crap. And that happened, you know, with uh, artist after artist after artist. They mm-hmm. maybe have a good producer or a good writer on the one song and the rest of them were terrible. And so people got tired of paying for a bunch of stuff that they would never, ever listen to. Well, I, there was certainly that too. And yeah, there were a lot of production um uh, companies, I think record companies that pushed their artists to turn crank things out so quickly that they said, "Give me a hit, and then we'll fill the rest with crap, and we'll sell an album." Yes, yes, and you know, you know people got tired of that. You know, the thing about you mentioned Pink Floyd, The Wall, but the same thing that could be said for, and I've just forgotten the name of it, the one that 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 was uh, right before that, um, that their their album was an experience, and and the songs, mm-hmm. you know, told a story, right? So right. Um, that's very much uh, and, sort of the sensibility of the progressive music, though, too, I think. Indeed. You know? Yeah, I would agree. I mean, Top I 40 doesn't need to have a, uh, that. And those are the albums that they would put, like, one or two or maybe three hits on. And, and then the rest of it, you know, maybe they were hoping they were going to be hits. But come on, anybody who listens to it would go like, yeah, that's filler. Yeah. 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 Um, and so I just, um, you know, I think people mm-hmm. got tired of it. I think that's why Napster happened. Because mm-hmm. the, you know, if you're going to give us garbage, we're going to find a way to just get what we want. And True. that's how, I think that's how Napster happened. Yeah. But I think a casualty was definitely the, the album art and stuff. I mean, uh, I actually, agree. I have a, a book of album art done by uh, English design firm Hypnosis. And they did some phenomenal, phenomenal stuff. Um, the the I don't know if you're. They did a lot of the Led Zeppelin albums, like Houses of the Holy album, and uh, which had like the, the the like naked children climbing up a you know this like this crumbled pile of rubble. Um, the uh, the uh, Wish You Were Here by Pink Floyd, where the guy's shaking hand with another guy who's on fire. Yes. Um, you know, I mean, just some some really creative, interesting things that that you just like. Wow, where'd they come up with that? So, hey, by the way, top twenty albums updated for twenty twenty, top selling of all time. Number twenty is the BG Saturday Night Fever. Oh, now that well, album that, that I was, believe. That was chock album. full of hits. I mean, whether you like disco or not, that album just had hit after hit after hit. They even ones there were some that the Bee Gees wrote and then somebody else recorded for them on the album. Like there was one by Samantha Sang, who was an Australian artist, that she sang one of their songs on there, and that was a hit. I mean, just almost stunning how how and, and that was one of those albums that, that that you know miraculously was written like in a two week time period because they needed to get it out. I remember the, the stories about that. It was like. Yeah, we just needed to get this done. They wanted us to write these things, so we just sat down and wrote all this stuff out and cranked it out and did it. And voila, you never know. Number wow. 19, Alanis Morissette, Jagged Little Pill. Oh, well, you know what? That was kind of a, uh, an anthem for girls who came of age when mm-hmm. I did. So I was that came out in what, 19, you said 1993? Uh, that was 95. 95, okay. So yeah. I was 25 when that, that album came out, and it, mm-hmm. was, it, it spoke to the Gen X woman. Well, you know what? I was not a Gen Xer or a woman, and I loved the album and bought that one. I, uh, to me, that was just phenomenal, a, a bunch of music. And her unique delivery and sensibilities made that, you know, so, such a different sound. Yes. And I'm very attracted to different sounds in music. So, I, you know, I, I don't like the same thing over and over. And so, you know, that's why groups that, that 
experiment and and find new ways of expressing themselves or try different instruments. You know, like like the Beatles. You listen to them from you know sixty four and sixty five, and then you know then two three years later they sound different. Two or three years later after that they sounded different again because they just kept kind of pushing the limits of what they could do in the studio and, and how you know melodies came together. Um, yeah. And so I always enjoyed that. Their number um, seven or eighteen, by the way, with their um, compilation album sixty seven seventy, which a lot of people call the blue album. They did like a greatest hits and a red album and a blue album. Two two of them. There were two double albums. That well, that shows you it's the Beatles, right? But the yes. sixty seven seventy one was number eighteen. They sold um, seventeen million copies of that. Wow. So far. Um, and. This is going to be a surprise to a lot of like rock and rollers and stuff, but number 17 in his first of several appearances on the list, Garth Brooks, No Fences. Oh, that doesn't surprise me at all. He me was neither. Wildly popular. Me neither. I remember that right about the time he was hitting, um, the, uh, the way that they measured sales changed a little bit. And they, they used to have like uh, tally sheets at record stores. And so if you went to Tower Records or, or um, you know, any of any record stores, they had tally sheets that they would then mail in. And that's how they would keep track of who won or I mean, who who sold what, you know, and it would be published in things like Rolling Stone and, and you could see who was winning. And what happened is they started then tracking it electronically. And because of the UPC code, they were able to do it very, very accurately. And then they didn't use just record stores they said well you know walmart sells albums and target sells albums so let's just collect the information from all of them because everybody's scanning it in and it's easy to go get and turns out garth brooks outsold everybody that year and yes. it was because all Probably of his albums at walmart all of his albums were being sold at walmart because <laughs> yes. because people who listen to garth brooks don't go into tower records because the people in tower records had you know uh, piercings and tattoos and most of the people who were buying Garth Brooks were wearing flannel you know it was just a different it's, crowd that was never being counted you know until they changed it which was amazing it was amazing I remember um, I think I don't want to credit the wrong person but I think it was um, uh, Joe Perry from uh, Aerosmith who uh, at the Grammys said who the blank is Garth Brooks <laughs> <You know? laughs> Because this guy shows up at the Grammys and he's got he's outsold everybody and they're like who is this guy? Nobody knew because he they he just you know they had never counted those people, and uh, uh, those people being country music fans and suddenly country music was like a big deal a big deal because they sell a lot of albums and make a lot of money and get a lot of people at concerts. Number sixteen, Elton John's greatest hits. Not a surprise there either. No. Yeah, came out in 74, and, uh, you know, I mean, by 74, he had been doing it for uh, about five years, and his first five albums or so were just nuts. I mean, you know, he started with Your Song on in 1970 or late 69, and, uh, and he was the number one selling artist of the 70s, and so... When the, when the 75, when the Greatest Hits album came out, he was halfway through. Like we talked about the other day, though, as he, as he got out of the 70s, he turned into a balladeer that just bored me to tears. Yep, um, me too. Um, that said, I've seen him in concert uh, a couple times now, and um, uh, he puts on a great show. He really does. 
Um, he doesn't have quite the vocal range he used to because he had done some damage to his vocal cords. So he sings in a different register. And then he has harmony people come in and do the high harmonies so that it uh, sounds very similar to what he used to, but not quite the same. Um, he used to do that tour with Elton or with uh, Billy Joel, the, the face-to-face tour where they put, or, or sometimes they called it two pianos, where they would both, like one of them would open, they would take turns opening, and then, uh, and then both bands would come out and they'd sing some songs together with both bands, and then the other one would then take the stage and do a concert. And then at the end, they would all come on for a finale. And they each did some of each other's songs as well as their own songs. Is that one of the best concerts I've ever seen. It was, uh, I got to see them uh, in Pittsburgh for my birthday gift uh, about 12 days after my daughter was born. It was, um, yeah, well, it was more than that, I guess, because I think it was like early July. So maybe it was two or three weeks after my daughter was, my first daughter was born. um, And uh, we had family visiting, so they watched the baby while my wife and I went to the concert. And... uh, it was it was funny though because they were starting to do encores and we said well you want to get out of here before there's the crowd's too bad you know um, I, I know we're missing some songs but this was like a almost three hour concert between the two guys with their full bands and she goes yeah I'm nursing and I'm about to burst <laughs> <laughs> well yeah she had just given birth yeah yeah she had this you know two week old infant at home and uh, yeah it's like you know and of course I'm a guy I wasn't thinking of that at all but she was just getting really uncomfortable and she was you know but she's trying to you know this is your gift i got this for you for your birthday i want you to have a good time but i gotta go (laughs) yeah Yeah. boston their first album boston is number 15 17 million that's a great album a A wicked talented band yeah uh tom schultz um doing his thing and uh just uh you know, the, the rest of the band, you know, I think he's always gotten a lot of credit for the band, but the rest of the band made that album work, too, you know, um, just something. Whitney Houston, The Bodyguard, the soundtrack to The Bodyguard is number 14, 18 million. Wow. Um, and I never realized that this was that. I mean, that had some great songs on it. I didn't realize it was that big of a seller. So that one was a little bit of a surprise to me. 18 times platinum by the uh, Recording Industry Association of America and won Grammy for Album of the Year. Clive Davis and Whitney Houston co-producers. Guns N' Roses' Appetite for Destruction. That was their. That was when they really hit big, right? Yes, they typified the L.A. sound. Yeah, 18 million. I was uh, going to Cal State San Bernardino at the time, and I remember one of my press professors came in, and he saw Guns N' Roses as the opening act for uh, the Rolling Stones, because they opened for the Rolling Stones in, uh, I don't want to say 87, it was a little bit later than that. But I remember the first thing out of his mouth was, great show, that band will never last. He says, they are not going to be, they are not going to be like the Rolling Stones. <laughs> They were wrong. He was wrong. Well, well they, they disintegrate. They self-destructed, but that they, wasn't because they weren't good musicians. Yeah, no, and that wasn't the point he was making. That he thought that the music was good, the show was good, but he just, he just, he could tell just by the way they acted on stage that this was a band not long for this world as a group. Um, but oh, it's yeah. ir- really ironic that they came back together and that they're for uh, for the most part the original uh, uh, group is still touring. I think they're lacking one guy. Um, you know, they, Axel they sort Rose. Of, 
So no, he's back with them. I mean, he, he oh. Ax, Axel is there. I think, and I, they've got Duff McKagan, who's their bassist, and um, Slash, the guitarist. I don't know if it's the uh, if they have the original drummer or rhythm guitarist there. So maybe they have two. But yeah, it was. Um, well, obviously nobody's touring right now. So, but that album had "Welcome to the Jungle," "Paradise City," and "Sweet Child of Mine" on it. So had a lot. Another country album, number 12, Shania Twain, Come On Over. My daughters loved this album. I was not a fan. I don't think she can mm-hmm. sing. Well, my daughter's... got a really small vocal range. Yeah. And... She was pop star who happened to sing country-styled pop. Yes. I should say was. She still is. Nothing's happened to her. She's still around. Um, uh, she retired from, from stuff for a while and raised her family for a while and then had a pretty nasty breakup, as I recall. And so she's back out on the road, or she was. Well, and she her music was produced by Mutt Lang, who was who did Def Leppard, who did Foreigner, who did you know yeah. many many other bands, and she, Mutt Lang was her husband too. Right. Yeah. So, anyhow, uh, number eleven, no surprise here. In fact, I thought it might even be higher up. Rumors by Fleetwood Mac. Oh yeah. Yeah, twenty million, and that's one that had just hit after hit after hit. In fact, we were just talking about uh, when you, when you isolate um, uh, the Lindsay Buckingham. Yeah. Lindsay Buckingham's vocal. It's, it's almost painful to listen to because he's in so emotional about how he sings that song and, and it just over the top. I mean, just wow. Yeah. Yeah. And by this one, this is the second album um, of Fleetwood Mac with Buckingham and, and Stevie Nicks, uh, as part of the band. And uh, when when they brought them on, Buckingham very quickly started doing a lot of the production on the songs for all of the songs. He kind of took charge, and the production kept getting longer and longer. He's one of those guys who's in the studio, says, nope, that's not quite right. Let's do it again. You know, <laughs> Let's try it well, this way. Let's try it that uh, way. <laughs> apparently he knew what he was doing. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But I can imagine that's got to be awfully trying for the rest of the band. It's like, we got it. Let's move on. And he's like, nope, nope, nope. Wait a minute. Let me try this. Or you guys go ahead and go home. I'm going to stay here <laughs> until four in the morning. I'm going to get this. Number 10 surprised me completely. Now, I know they were big, but I had no idea. Hootie and the Blowfish Cracked Rear View is number 10 with 21 million sales. Yeah. And I had no idea. I knew they were big, too, but dang. Yeah, 22 million copies, 3 million of which were sold through um, mail order through Columbia House. Ah. Which is interesting. I was a member of Columbia House. I remember that. You mm-hmm. get your first shipment for a penny or whatever it was. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, or you get ten, ten albums for a for a penny or something, and and then you're then they start showing up regularly with fifteen dollar bills, and your parents are looking at you going, "What's this?" You go, "I don't know." Well, and yeah. I got a Darius Rucker has had a has had a good career since then. He's making country music. Yeah, he's 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 gone on. I mean, he, what a voice. I mean, you know, he's he's a really talented guy, uh, and I think he just got tired of being called Hootie. <laughs> like I'm not Hootie, you know. And that's what happens when you name your band like that, though. I know Ian Anderson got tired of being called Jethro from Jethro Tull. You know, it's like, no, no, none of us are Jethro. We're not a Jethro. In fact, even in Pink Floyd, even has in one of their songs, you know, uh, which one of you's pink? It's like none of you. We're none of us pink. None of us are Floyd. None of us are Pink Floyd. The band. That's the name of the band. 
you know. <laughs> Ironically, then there is an artist named Pink now, and she has nothing to do with Pink Floyd. No, uh, and she got her name. She she picked that name uh, based on Reservoir Dogs. Oh, really? That's cool. Yes. Because the different Mr. Brown, Mr. Bl- Green. Yeah. Yes. That's yes. very cool. And I didn't know that story. Steve Buscemi was Pink. That's so cool. And she picked so Steve she, Buscemi. <laughs> yes, she did. She did. I, I love Steve Buscemi. He is such a great actor, but he is such a, a interesting looking guy. Uh-huh. <laughs> he really is. Um, yeah, he's he's wonderful. Number nine, we're in the top ten now. Garth Brooks, Double Live. Ah, he's in there twice. Yeah, yeah. And he's the first one to double up. Um, of course, that means he's not at the real high end of the top of this stuff. But, I mean, to be in the top 20 of all selling albums ever as a solo artist is twice. He's the only yes. one only one who does it twice as a solo artist, I think. Um, and, uh, yeah, so uh, 21 million albums, double live. And it's a double album, mind you. ACDC Back in Black is number eight. Oh, yeah. Yeah, a lot yeah. going on there. That one... Um, doesn't surprise me a whole lot. Um, and then one we've talked about, Pink Floyd, The Wall, is number seven. 23 million albums. And it came out in November of 1979, and it was such a massive hit. It was on the radio it was a, everywhere. It was a monster. Yeah, it yeah. was a monster. Yeah. Bits and, the weird thing is, is because the way it's laid out as a, a story, you know, they were picking and choosing um, pieces to play as as like uh singles on the radio but they they don't really like the previous one doesn't finish before the next one starts and so they overlap and so they would be playing this thing and it would just like you know and so you'd hear this as the end of the previous song as they go into the next song um because they didn't really release single versions of this stuff they just took the album cut and said okay that's what we're going to play yeah yeah so i i i want to ask if Dark Side of the Moon is on that list, but we'll we'll uh, uh, let's let's keep going. Yeah, because that's the one that holds the record for the longest time on the Billboard uh, Hot 200. Right? Is Dark Side of the Moon? I think so. Yeah. Um, okay, so number six, Led Zeppelin four. Okay, and oh. that's not a terrible surprise. I mean, it has Stairway to Heaven on it, and uh, you know they were top selling group from the seventies. So um, yeah, I, I get that. Um, it was released in November of seventy one, and thirty seven or twenty three million uh, U.S. albums sold. These are U.S. top. By the way, this is top twenty in the U.S. They sold thirty seven million worldwide. So, um, and oh, you know what? I was wrong. Um, well, I guess not. Billy Joel's Greatest Hits Volume One and Two. It was sold as a package, even though it was called Volume One and Two. Um, it was a double album, and that's number five at 23 million and since he has you know hit after hit after hit between the like sort of mid 70s to mid 80s not a big surprise there number four our second bowing in from the beatles but this surprises me i didn't think this would be the album the white album oh so what was on the white album so um it had revolution um uh the original uh, the one that you heard you know he's doing you want a revolution oh yeah Um, and but then they also had the revolution number no. nine, which is the one that everybody makes fun of because it was number nine, number nine, number nine, which is kind of weird. Um, it was uh, the Beatles; they got very weird. Yeah, this was probably their their least um, edited release. 
in that they kind of just stuck a lot of stuff in there. It was a double album, and I think everybody kind of got a little experimental, uh, more so than they had been before. You know, I was er earlier applauding the fact that they were very experimental and different. This is where they kind of stepped over the edge just a little bit. And you uh, have to be uh, inebriated, intoxicated, somewhere out in an altered state to listen to it. Well, certainly number nine, yeah. Um, but they had, uh, you know, uh, Rocky Raccoon was on this album, and and I mean there was there was a lot of songs in there. Um, so you know, it, it's weird though because it varied from kind of sweet little songs like Paul McCartney writing Martha, which was about his sheepdog, um, to. Uh, to you know like revolution and stuff so um the eagles make their first bow into the list at number three hotel california and that oh, was yeah. another huge album and that was one that was cool because it had this beautiful picture on the front but if you opened it up it had the band standing in the foyer of a hotel and so each of the band guys were standing in different places in this foyer and it turns out that that foyer was um the mission inn uh, seriously yeah so that's where they shot it but that 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 photo but you never see the gate fold because you don't have who has the album anymore right that's true something lost something lost 26 million people it was their fifth studio album um and it was 26 times platinum ranked number 37 on rolling stones list of 500 greatest albums of all time so they liked it. That had New Kid in Town and Hotel California, etc. Number two, Michael Jackson, Thriller. I think that was his best album. I liked that a lot. I take that back. I'm sorry. I'm confused. I like Off the Wall. My favorite is Off the Wall. I yeah. like the Off the Wall album a lot better than the Thriller album. Yeah, I, yeah I, I, I get that Thriller was where he was huge, but I think Off the Wall was a better album overall. And I think that's my favorite Michael Jackson album. Um, 33 million. Uh, it was his sixth studio album, um, Thriller. It had Billie Jean beat it, Thriller, The Girl Is Mine. So, I mean, it had a lot of hits on it. But, uh, um, yeah, big album. And then number one, no surprise, we talked about it earlier, The Eagles' Greatest Hits, 71 to 75. Uh, ironically, it's actually titled Their Greatest Hits, Volumes 1 and 2. So they did the uh -huh. same thing Billy Joel did. That's interesting. Uh now, I love, you know, Billy Joel is somebody who you don't hear on the radio anymore at all. You still mm -hmm. hear on um, the classic rock stations, you'll still hear um, the Eagles fairly regularly, but mm -hmm. um, I never hear Billy Joel. And so yeah. I listen to him on Spotify, and he's a phenomenal songwriter. He is. Yeah. I mean, Garth Brooks covered one of his songs. Heck. <laughs> Did he really? Yeah. Um, Shameless. Oh. is a Billy Joel song, and Billy Joel performs it in concert beautifully. Um, they actually have similar voices. It's kind of funny. Uh, you don't realize it till you hear them both sing the song. Uh, but, yeah, he's he's a really great songwriter. What always, always surprises me with Billy Joel is, like, you know, he's 60-something now, and he still goes out and tours occasionally, obviously COVID notwithstanding. What the heck? Why isn't he writing new songs? Why did he just stop? He's... He's become an oldies act. He just plays the old stuff. You know, I mean, Elton John still comes out with an album every once in a while. Maybe he just doesn't want to do it anymore. I guess. I guess. I know he wrote a couple of classical pieces. Um, you know, Paul McCartney did that at one point as well. But I'm just I'm surprised that uh, that, you know, man with so much talent and so much to offer just stopped. 
You know, he's still there. He's out doing things. Every once in a while you hear from him. But it's kind of a bummer because I would love to hear new music from him because he is so talented and I enjoy his music so much. You know, and maybe he thinks that his music doesn't have a place to play because it's not country and it's not top 40. And if it's not one of those two, it doesn't get on the radio. That's true. Because we've specialized, you know, there's no mix on the radio anymore. It's absolutely right. You know, although it would get play on Spotify. I mean, that's the thing about it is. Yeah. And maybe it's not enough, but because uh, you don't get you don't make as much money on Spotify. The artists don't. But um, I love Spotify and mm-hmm. these services where you can you can find new music that's not from this this right. awful canned garbage that's on the radio right now. I agree. I agree. You know, and but if you think about it, I mean, most artists make their money off of touring these days and he's already touring on and off when he feels like it, um, you know, or he does a, a stint at Madison Square Garden and, and sells it out. I mean, he sells out Madison Square Garden every time he books it. You know, it's like he can go make money. Um, so he's not doing it for, he just must not want to do it. Just doesn't feel like it. Not, not moved, which is, you know, frustrating as a fan. Yeah. No kidding. You know, that's a lot said, of work to he, put out on an album though. I mean, it, it it's, is, it, it's, it's like giving birth, I imagine. And, yeah. and he just probably, he's like, I'm, I don't need to do that anymore. Yeah. I'm sure it's hard work and tiring and maybe he never really liked studio work anyway. He prefers singing live. Um, and quite frankly, if he's going to do, you know, if he's going to turn into the, the, um, the Elton or the uh, yeah, what Elton John did and just do a bunch of schmaltzy ballads, then I don't want to hear it. Not that he didn't. Yeah. I mean, he was primarily a balladeer to begin with. He was much more of a balladeer than than Elton John was. Um, but uh, in fact, he always he he after having kind of made a name for himself, then tried to goose it up a bit by getting things with more of a beat, and more of a uh, of a rock and roll sensibility because he likes that music. It's just you know he kind of made his bones singing ballads. So I guess I shouldn't say that because that's kind of what he does. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, well, you know, I mean, he had, um, he had some rock and roll tunes. I don't know. Maybe mm-hmm. Christy Brinkley just really messed him up. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. I don't you know. know. I, and Lionel Richie, why isn't he making new music? He's yeah, phenomenal. I know. I remember seeing an interview with him. I'm surprised that the Commodores wasn't on that list. Actually, you're right. They're absolutely not on there at all. And they, and they were huge when they were hitting hard. Um, and, you know, and Lionel Richie, I remember an interview with him talking about writing music one time. And maybe this is the reason he's not doing it anymore. But he said that he would like have brain, or have have music just kind of come into his head fully formed. That he he didn't. I mean, he did some work work on it. But but that a lot of times it was just like he he looked at it as almost a spiritual thing because it was like. God just put it there, and so I just transcribe it. And uh, you know, if he's not getting that sense anymore, if he's not feeling like it, it's it's there, oh. then he doesn't write anymore. I don't know. I've not heard him explain why he's not doing it. Just like I haven't heard Billy Joel explain why he's choosing not to write music anymore. Um, but you're right. There's another one that's like, what the heck? The other, you know, I mean, uh, he did it for a while, but I haven't heard anything new from uh, Stevie Wonder in a long time either, and he's still around. And that's true. Another and person what a talent. written some songs that you just go like, whoa, how did he do that? Where did that yeah, come from? What an incredible talent. The 70s, I tell you, the 70s and I would say mm-hmm. earlier 80s are filled with wicked, talented musicians. Mm-hmm. You know, and, you know, it's interesting because country music, when it started hitting really big um, in the 90s, we had these incredible musicians who were doing interesting things. And then everything became cookie cutter. 
And yeah. I remember when the Dixie Chicks came out, it was like, ha, ah, because they were, they were, they had their own sound. I mean, clearly they were yeah. doing it. They, they didn't, they weren't relying on a producer to create their music for them. And, um, uh, you know, we need that kind of revival now in rock and yeah. roll. We need artists to take control of their destiny and not just do the canned stuff that the producers want them to do. Um, I think exactly. I mentioned it before. There's a show called um, uh, Songland on, on uh, television. And um, I don't know if you can find it on streaming somewhere. I think it might be on Hulu. Um, but it's uh, they, they, they bring in an artist and and then they present the artist with four different songwriters and each songwriter comes in and sings the song that they've written for that artist or that they've that they've submitted to the show and the show then paired them and said we think yours is one of the ones that'll be good for this artist and so um they sing their song and then the artist pairs it down to three and then he takes each of those three or she takes those three and pairs them with one of three songwriter producers who then go and rework the song and then they represent the songs to them. And then part of the deal is that artist then will record the song that they pick and put it on their next album. Oh, cool. And um, some of it I think is great. Some of it I, I listen to what they do in terms of trying to produce these songs or modify these songs to make them, you know, current, air quotes, current. Um, and I go, oh, they ruined a song. <laughs> you know, it's just, and it's interesting because they do all different kinds of, of, um, genres here i mean and the producers work in all different kinds of genres and so are the, the they're they're also songwriters each of these people have have written songs for people that have been hits as well as helped produce songs and so um they're they're wicked talented but they are all you know keeping an eye out for what they believe to be current and i think they put right. so much so much focus on trying to make things current that they don't just allow themselves to be creative and exactly, and it's really kind of sad. But I really enjoy the show. It's fun to see the process and how they collaborate and what they do. Sometimes they'll come in and so sing something, and one of them will just like have them stop and say, "Wait a minute, have you tried this?" And they'll just, you know, instead of going up on a song, go down on a song to to make uh, make the the set up the chorus a little differently. And it's just a phenomenal change. And you go like, "Whoa, what a great ear for that! that was a great change," you know. And it's funny to watch these young songwriters who have, you know, never sold a song before get involved with them because they're like, oh, I never thought of that. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah, it's fun to watch creative people do creative things. Like I said, my one knock is, is that there's maybe a little bit too much emphasis on trying to be current as opposed to trying to be good. Not that they don't all want to be good, obviously, but. Um, so it reminds me of, you know, the, the latest iteration of A Star is Born. You see that that process happen, right? Mm -hmm. And um, uh, and so, oh, it looks like my husband's leaving. He's got a dentist appointment. Bye, Tobin. <laughs> Happy Tooth Day. <laughs> um, so uh, uh, the latest iteration of A Star Is Born, you have this music that Lady Gaga's character has written, which was actually written by um, this uh, Willie Nelson's sons. Um, but uh, and the music is really good. And then they get in right. the studio with a pop guy, and it sounds awful. It's mm -hmm. this generic sounding crap. And that is this this iteration of the movie was such an indictment of the music industry mm -hmm. in general. And one of the many reasons why I love the movie, yeah. uh, because you, you take this stuff that that true creative people are putting out and you you ruin it and you make it generic and you make it bleh. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, and in fact, the poppy song was written by Lady Gaga, and she said she intentionally tried to write a poppy song that didn't sound like Lady Gaga, but sounded like this character. And what would happen to this character if she got caught up in in that situation? Yeah. And well, she succeeded, yeah, because it was kind of schmaltzy. By the way, song, awful. Songland is uh, conceived of and produced by Dave Stewart, formerly of the Eurythmics. Yeah. And oh, the, cool. the three um, uh, producer songwriters, uh, Esther Dean is a Grammy nominated producer and songwriter. Uh, lead singer of One Republic, Ryan Tedder, is also Grammy winning producer and songwriter. And then uh, Shane Mc, McAnally is the other one. And he uh, works out of Nashville and has done a whole bunch of stuff. And they're all really good. And it's funny because you'll see somebody like Shane McAnally, who's more of a country kind of guy working with somebody who's doing like a pop hip hop type thing. And he, he just changes gears like not not a problem. We'll just go work with this. You know, they, they're completely uh, agnostic as to the style of music. They just know good music and how things flow and how to put things together. And although sometimes, like I said, they, I feel like that when they're done, they've made it a worse song. Um, that's my opinion. Um, they obviously know what they're doing because they all have had you know hits and they know how they're doing it they um they've had some some real interesting uh uh people on the um on the show though too they've had the jonas brothers megan trainer uh macklemore as 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 the leona lewis uh old dominion you know so they go country i mean they've they've had john legend came on you know will i am I thought the Will I Am one was interesting because he eliminated the first person, so then he had the three to pick from, and he picked a winner, but then he went to the other two and said, your stuff's actually really, really good. I like that. The album we're getting ready to put, to, to, to put out, I'm going to take two songs off of it and put yours on it. So all three songs ended up on the next um, um, next album that they put out, Black Eyed Peas. Cool. Album. Yeah. He was like, you guys, this is too good to not record. And uh, Oh, and... The fourth guy, he said, you do that song better than I could. I'm going to produce you recording your song. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. So there were no losers when Will I Am came on, which, which is pretty cool and, and, and unexpected. That so was we like are completely out of out, time. I'm, I'm so sorry. sorry. I'm sorry. Thanks for watching the clock for us. I know we spent all day talking music today, which is a different day. Oh, it was but great. It was fun. Yeah, different, different kind of show. But uh, anyway, thanks for joining us. I'm Todd Brinker. I'm Aaron Brinker. Have a great day.